Section four of the machine that saved the world. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Machine That Saved the World by Murray Lunster. Section four. Sergeant Bellews pushed to a spot near Betsy. He put down his now linked man machine and began to move away some of the recording apparatus focused on Betsy. "'Hold on there,' said Howell, in alarm. "'Those are recorders.' "'Well, let em record direct,' said the sergeant. Lecky spoke feverishly in support of Bellews, but what he said was, in effect, a still marvelling description of the possibilities of man-modified machines. They were, he said, with ardent enthusiasm, the next step in the historic process by which successively greater portions of the cosmos entered into a symbiotic relationship with man. Domestic animals entered into such a partnership eons ago. Certain plants, wheat and the like, even became unable to exist without human attention, and machines were wrought by man and for a long time served him reluctantly. Pre-man machines were tamed, not domestic. They wore themselves out and destroyed themselves by accidents, but now there were machines which could enter into a truly symbiotic relationship with humanity. "'What?' demanded Howe. "'What in hell are you talking about?' Lecky checked himself. He smiled abashedly. "'I think,' he said humbly, "'that I speak of the high destiny of mankind, but the part that applies at the moment is that Sergeant Bellews must not be interfered with.' He turned and ardently assisted Sergeant Bellews in making room for the just-bought devices. Sergeant Bellews led flexible cables from them to Betsy. He inserted their leads in her training terminals. He made adjustments within. It became notable that Betsy's standby light took up new tempos in its wavering. There were elaborate interweavings of rate and degree of brightening among the lights of all three instruments. There was no possible way to explain the fact, but a feeling of pleasure, of zestful stirring, was somehow expressed by the three machines which had been linked together into a cooperating group. Sergeant Bellews eased himself into a chair. "'Now everything's set,' he observed contentedly. "'Remember, I ain't seen any of these broadcasts unscrambled. I don't know what it's all about.' But we've got three man machines set up now to work on the next crazy broadcast that comes in. There's Betsy and these two others, and all machines work according to the golden rule. But man machines, they are honey babes. They bust themselves trying to do what you ask them. And I asked these babes for plenty, only not enough to hurt them. Let's see what they turn out. He pulled a pipe and tobacco from his pocket. He filled the pipe. He squeezed the side of the bowl and puffed as the tobacco glowed. He relaxed, underneath the war sign which sternly forbade smoking by all military personnel within these premises. It was nearly three hours, but it could have been hundreds, before Betsy's screen lighted abruptly. The broadcast came in, a new transmission. The picture pattern on Betsy's screen was obviously not the same as other broadcasts from nowhere. The chirps and peepings and the rumbling deep sounds were not repetitions of earlier noise sequences. It should have taken many days of finicky work by technicians at the Pentagon before the originally broadcast picture could be seen 
but the playback recorder named Al and a picture-run scrambler named Gus were in closed circuit relationship with Betsy. She received the broadcast and they unscrambled the sound and vision parts of it immediately. The translated broadcast, as Gus and Al presented it, was calculated to put the high brass of the defence forces into a frenzied tizzy. The anguished consternation of previous occasions would seem like very calm contemplation by comparison. The high brass of the armed forces should grow dizzy. Top echelon civilian officials should tend to talk incoherently to themselves, and scientific consultants, biologists in particular, ought to feel their heads spinning like tops. The point was that the broadcast had to be taken seriously, because it came from nowhere. There was no faintest indication of any signal outside of Betsy's sedately grey-painted case. But Betsy was not making it up. She couldn't. There was a technology involved which required the most earnest consideration of the message carried by it. And this broadcast explained the danger from which the alleged future wished to rescue its alleged past. A brisk, completely deracialized broadcaster appeared on Gussie's screen. In clipped, oddly stressed but completely intelligible phrases, he explained that he recognized the paradox his communication represented. Even before 1972, he observed, there had been argument about what would happen if a man could travel in time and happen to go back to an earlier age and kill his grandfather. This communication was an inversion of that paradox. The world of 2180 wished to communicate back in time and save the lives of its great-great-great-grandparents, so that it, the world of 2180, would be born. Without this warning and the information to be given, at least half the human race of 1972 was doomed. In late 1971 there had been a mutation of a minor strain of Staphylococcus somewhere in the Andes. The new mutation thrived and flourished. With the swift transportation of the period, it had spread practically all over the world unnoticed, because it produced no symptoms of disease. Half the members of the human race were carriers of the harmless, mutated Staphylococcus now, but it was about to mutate again in accordance with Gordon's law. The reference had no meaning in 1972, and the new mutation would be lethal. In effect, one human being in two carried in his body a semi-virus organization which he continually spread, and which very shortly would become deadly. Half the human race was bound to die unless it was instructed as to how to cope with it, unless the world of 2180 told its ancestors what to do about it. That was the proposal. Two-way communication was necessary for the purpose, because there would be questions to be answered, obscure points to be clarified, numerical values to be checked to the highest possible degree of accuracy. Therefore, here were diagrams of the transmitter needed to communicate with future time. Here were enlarged diagrams of individual parts. The enigmatic parts of the drawing produced a wave-type unknown in 1972, but a special type of wave was needed to travel beyond the three dimensions of ordinary space into the fourth dimension, which was time. This wave type produced unpredictable surges of power in the transmitter, 
wherefore at least six transmitters should be built and linked together so that if one ceased operation another would instantly take up the task the broadcast ended abruptly betsy's screen went blank the colonel was notified a courier took tapes to washington by high-speed jet life in research establishment eighty three went on sedately the barracks and the married quarters and the residences of the officers were equipped with man modified machines which laundered diapers perfectly and with dial telephones which always rang right numbers and there were police-up machines which took perfect care of lawns and television receivers tuned themselves to the customary channels for different hours with astonishing ease even jet planes equipped with man units almost landed themselves and almost flew themselves about the sky in simulated combat with something very close to zest but the atmosphere in the room in communications was tense i think said howell with his lips compressed that this answers all your objections graves motive no said lecky painfully it does not answer mine my objection is that i do not believe it <laughs> said sergeant bellew scornfully of course you don't believe it it's phony clear through lecky looked at him hopefully you noticed something that we missed sergeant hell yes said sergeant bellews that transmitter diagram don't have a man unit in it is that remarkable demanded howell remarkable dumb said the sergeant they ought to know the tall young lieutenant who earlier had fetched sergeant bellews to communications now appeared again he gracefully entered the room where Betsy waited for more broadcast matter. Her standby light flickered with something close to animation, and the similar yellow bulbs on Al and Gus responded in kind. The tall young lieutenant said politely, "'I'm sorry, but pending orders from the Pentagon, the Colonel has ordered this room vacated. Only automatic recorders will be allowed here, and all records they produce will be sent to Washington without examination.' It seems that no one on this post has the necessary clearance for this type of material. Lecky blinked. Graves sputtered. But, damn it, do you mean we can work out a way to receive a broadcast and not be qualified to see it? There's a common-sense view, said Sergeant Bellews, oracularly, and a crazy view, and there's what the Pentagon says, which ain't either. He stood up. I see where I go back to my shop and finish rehabilitating the Colonel's vacuum cleaner. You gentlemen care to join me? Howell said indignantly, This is ridiculous. This is absurd. Uh-uh, said Sergeant Bellews benignly. This is the armed forces. There'll be an order making some sort of sense come along later. Meanwhile, I can brief you guys on man machines so you'll be ready to start up again with better information when a clearance order does come through. "'and I've got some beer in my quarters behind the rehab shop. "'Come along with me.' "'He led the way out of the room. "'The young lieutenant paused to close the door firmly behind him and to lock it. "'A bored private with side-arms took post before it. "'The lieutenant was a very conscientious young man. "'But he did not interfere with the parade to Sergeant Bellew's quarters. "'The young lieutenant was very military.' and the ways of civilians were not his concern. If eminent scientists chose to go to Sergeant Bellew's quarters instead of the officers' club, to which their assimilated rank entitled them, it was strictly their affair. 
they reached the rehab shop and sergeant bellews went firmly to a stand-by light equipped refrigerator in his quarters he brought out beer and deftly popped off the tops the ice-box door closed quietly here's to crime said sergeant bellews amiably he drank howell sipped gloomily graves drank thoughtfully lecky looked anticipative sergeant he said did i see a gleam in your eye just now sergeant bellews reflected gently shaking his opened beer-can with a rotary motion for no reason whatever ah uh -huh, he rumbled i wouldn't say a gleam but you might have seen a glint i got some ideas from what i seen during that broadcast i want to get to work on em here's the place to do the work we got facilities here howell said with precise hot anger this is the most idiotic situation i have ever seen even in government service you ain't been around much the sergeant told him kindly it happens everywhere all the time it ain't even an exclusive feature of the armed forces he put down his beer-can and patted his stomach there's guys who sit up nights working out standard operational procedures just to make things like this happen everywhere the colonel had to do what he did he's got orders too but he felt bad so he sent the lieutenant to tell us he does the colonel's dirty jobs and he loves his work End of section four.